Hi, I'm Mike Keithley. I'm a seminarian with the Diocese of Austin. I'm obviously not Father Will Rooney, but he's been very gracious to allow me to post this talk I did with the Cathedral Young Adults and the RCIA to his podcast feed. I want to preface this talk by first thanking everyone who attended the talk and thanking you who are now listening to it. This is the first talk of its kind that I've ever done. I also want to preface some things. One thing is the Ignatian discernment of spirits, properly speaking, is not referring to a natural sort of spiritedness as Plato presents in the Republic. And that is what I presented as part of the human person in my talk. The reason why I didn't differentiate between the Ignatian discernment of spirits, namely the Holy Spirit or angels or demons, and the natural spirit of the human person is that I didn't want to... Hmm, how do I say this? I didn't want to make things too complex. And ultimately, I think that whenever whenever someone does not have their intellect formed around what a sin is, what vice is, what mere concupiscence is, what temptation is, and all of these other various things, it can be difficult to discern what even the movement of their spirit is. And so the idea that I had going into this talk was that, at least in the beginning, it doesn't really matter what kind of spirit is, is moving oneself in a particular way. What does matter is forming the intellect around being able to resist being controlled by one's affects and emotions and essentially any spirit, including one's own. The other reason behind this is that although one can be influenced by an external spirit, at the end of the day, it is one's own spirit uh, that contains the affect within it, not that another spirit possesses one or enters uh, oneself, but more along the lines that one feels what one is being affected with and one is motivated by that. And so in a certain sense, I don't know if whether or not it's the Holy spirit or an evil spirit or one's own spirit has any bearing on the fact that there are certain things that are sinful and there are certain things that are not. There are certain things that are perfect in act, and there are certain things that are imperfect in act. And so forming the intellect helps one discern whether or not an action is prudent, whether or not it is sinful, whether or not it is whatever you may have it. And discernment of spirits helps us understand what to do when we're unsure. But it does require a base level of that knowledge. That's all that I was trying to get at. Um, I'm not trying to say that uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola was saying that 
spiritual movements are merely internal. To the contrary, they can certainly be external. I just wanted to give people a framework of certainty. And that is the thing that I have noticed has been missing. Okay, that's enough of me prefacing this thing. Now to get into the real meat of the talk. If you are interested in becoming a priest or entering into religious life, or you just need help discerning your vocation, please go to godiscalling.me. Godiscalling.me. And you can reach out. You can look at the calendar of events that we have and attend any of our discernment events. We have discernment events for uh, men. We have discernment events for women. We have discernment events for high schoolers. We have retreats. We have discernment materials that are freely available. Uh, And we also just have a human being that you can reach out to and talk to in the person of Father Greg Gerhardt, our vocations director. Okay, I really mean it this time. I've rambled on enough. Enjoy the talk and thank you ahead of time. All right, I'm recording. Oh, yeah. Bathrooms, just in time for, for recording, bathrooms are in that hallway. There's two of them. They're single occupancy, just be forewarned. Um, <laughs> all right, so I want to I start by telling you a story about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. So for those of you who don't know, St. Thomas Aquinas was uh, born in Italy to a noble family, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was not like the other kids. Um, <laughs> So he, he wanted, you know, he basically just wanted to like think about things and he didn't want to, he didn't want to talk. He didn't want to go hunting. He didn't want to do any of the things that men are supposed to do. So, um, so his parents were like, all right, what are we going to do with Thomas? And so they, his uncle was the, the, um, abbot of Monte Cassino. And so they said, all right, we'll make a deal with the monastery that if we give him as an oblate, that when he comes of age and the time is right, they will make him the abbot of Monte Cassino. And so they did that. So they, and this was like a common thing to do. You give your son to uh, like a monastery and they raise him and he becomes a monk. Um, So uh, there are actually like a lot of charming stories of him toddling around Monte Cassino asking, you know, like, what is God? And uh, the monks are like, I don't know. Um, and so, so, uh, basically what ends up happening is they send, uh, Thomas off to go to university in Spain and for a variety of reasons, one of them being that, uh, his life was in danger for other reasons that I won't digress into. But, uh, so he's, he's at this university and, um, he encounters Dominicans for the first time. And back in this day, to be a Dominican was like a, a really ridiculous, foolish thing to do in the eyes of the society. Like being an abbot at Monte Cassino, which was the monastery that St. Benedict founded, was like in, in, in the religious order of things, the best thing that could possibly happen to you. There was no greater prestige. And uh, the Dominicans were these 
riffraff who um, they didn't practice stability. They didn't, uh, they didn't, you know, hold any sort of money at all. They had to beg for all of their money. And um, yeah, they were just viewed as the scourge of society. And so uh, Thomas encounters a, a Dominican. He enters the order and he tells his family, I've entered the Dominicans and his brothers promptly um, decide to kidnap him and uh, yeah, imprison him in the tower of their family castle. And so, so I tell you all of this to, to say this. Um, St. Thomas loved his sisters and his sisters loved St. Thomas. And uh, in fact, one of his, one of his sisters became quite the abbess of a Benedictine uh, a convent. Um, but he was teaching his sisters one, one evening and one of his sisters asked him, Thomas, how does one become holy? And St. Thomas re replied with two words, desire it. And so I want to talk about, in part tonight, today, desire in the context of vocational discernment. And my motivations are because I have found vocational discernment information out there to be confusing. Um, stuff like, well, well, okay, first of all, it's largely based on Ignatian spirituality, which is fine. It's a great thing. It will not lead you astray, provided that you have the uh, formation for it to be effective. So namely, knowing the virtues, knowing the faith, knowing uh, sort of how you as a person are composed uh, as a body-soul composite. Um, and so, and, and there's also just weird advice, like one thing that I see all the time is, well, if you have a desire for uh, a particular vocation, it could be a sign that you're called to that vocation. It could also mean that you're not called to that vocation and you're just like, okay. <laughs> like, why would you even, yeah, thanks for not helping me at all. Um, and so like all of this amounts to stuff that I went through like sitting in Eucharistic adoration, just like really waiting for the Holy Spirit to give you a, a five-year plan for your vocation or stuff like uh, constantly being like, I'm current, presently, you know, discerning my vocation. Uh, or uh, some people will like try to force something. Like some people, um, some people really want to become a priest. And so they will like shop around to dioceses, you know, apply, like trying to apply to like every diocese that they can to become a priest. And that's not good either. Um, so what is your vocation? Well, your primary vocation is to become holy. So congratulations. Um, you know what your vocation is. So you can walk out of here confident knowing what you're supposed to do. Become holy. That's simple. No, not really. Um, and so tr a diff that would be a different talk. How do you become holy generally? Um, secondary vocation, which is what we typically think of when we talk about vocation. It's a few things. One thing is that it is a gift. It is a gift from God. It is not something that you merit, um, except for marriage a little bit, but um, not in the context of a Christian marriage. 
it is um, knowable to you. You you can know what it is before it actually happens. It is knowable to others. So uh, particularly the old women who arrive to daily mass 30 minutes early so that they can pray the rosary together, they know. They know. Um, but most importantly, it, it's, it's the way that God wants to make you holy. It is, uh, it is the way that God wants to make you holy. Now, before I proceed, I don't want to create a sense of anxiety. Uh, whatever vocation you are able to um, enter into, um, two things there. One, uh, be it marriage, religious life, diocesan priesthood, there is another party discerning along with you. And so don't worry about uh, trying to force it because the other party has to like say yes. Um, we're, we're imminently aware of this in the, in the context of marriage. And, um, but trust me, when you apply for the diocesan priesthood, there is a very long process of the diocese tr- like determining whether or not to say yes. So, um, and then there's seven years. Um, so yeah, like you shouldn't like discerning your vocation. If it, if it gives you anxiety, relax, God's like, God's in control. Um, and let's say that you on the off hand on, on the off chance, choose something that was not God's primary plan for you. Guess what? It's still a great thing and it is a path for holiness. So like, all of this is achievable through grace. It's always through grace. Um, okay, so my, my vocation story could be expounded on, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want you to like compare yourself with me and say, oh gosh, like uh, I didn't do 40 hours, first 40, uh, like I didn't do like a first Friday devotion and the, uh, the cross did not appear to me in a vision and speak to me or something like that. Um, none, none of those things happen to me, but, um, <laughs> like, I don't want you, I don't want you to like think, oh God, oh gosh, my vocation story sounds nothing like this. I couldn't possibly be called to that. Like my vocation story is wildly different from every other guy's vocation story. It's different from Father Will. It's different from all of the seminarians that I know. Um, so find your vocation story. All right. Now, crash course on the human person. You may ask why. Well, it's because oftentimes people are like, go to spiritual direction when you're discerning your vocation. And that's true. Go to spiritual direction while you're discerning your vocation. Um, But find a spiritual director that doesn't just focus on the spirit. What is the spirit? Well, let's talk about the human person first. One, human person is a body-soul composite. So you are not like a body and a soul that are like kind of fit together. It doesn't work that way. You, you, you are your body and you are your soul. When someone talks about you, they're talking about both things. Now you might say, but one day we'll die and our soul will be separated from your body. That's true. And there are metaphysical reasons why your body is still you that I can't get into right now. You're just going to have to trust me. Um, the soul causes your body. So uh, I think it's like once every year. Uh, all of the matter that was in your body the year before is gone and it's replaced with new matter. And yet you look the same. What's up with that? Um, in part, it's the soul. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, thank you, Father, for pointing that out to me. <laughs> See what I have to live with? No, he's great. He gives me food. So, um, the body, and the body is how we interact with the world. So, I mean, when, when we're talking about a human person, I think it's really tempting to just sort of like shun the body and say, oh gosh, all physical pleasure is, you know, an occasion for sin. And it's like, that's not what you're supposed to do. Um, but that's like a virtue ethics thing that I'm going to touch on a little bit later on. <clears throat> all right. So let's talk about the soul. Like we're pretty familiar with the body. Like we're looking at it right now. We've got like fingers and blood and stuff like that. Um, all right. So the soul. Three parts according to Plato, and we're sprinkling a little bit of Augustine in here. Um, there's the intellective part of the soul. So this is what we typically call the intellect, and it is comprised of like knowledge, reason, intuition, actual intellect, and uh, according to Augustine, the will. And the will is what's called the appetite of the intellect. All right, I'm gonna pin that for a moment and move on to the spirit before we get to the appetite. All right, so the spirited part of the, the, the soul. This is the thing that's all about feelings. Whenever you say, I feel this way, or um, you have like some sort of feeling that motivates you to act in a particular way, be it fear, happiness, uh, sorrow, joy, whatever, that is the spirit. So when we're talking about spiritual direction and the Ignatian discernment of spirits, we're talking about figuring out what our feelings are and figuring out why we feel that way and figuring out how that influences our actions. So that's why Ignatian discernment of the spirits is a very good thing. It's why spiritual directions is, a, uh, sorry, spiritual direction is a very good thing. The reason why it's dangerous to just focus on that is because what if you don't know enough to know why you feel that way? And that is where we come to the appetite. You see, the appetite is the thing that sort of says, yeah, I want that. There's not necessarily an emotion attached to it, um, but it's, I want that. And so um, Plato's, Plato and Aristotle agree that the appetite is a bodily part of the soul. And so it typically it centers around food, drink, sex, um, any sort of comfort, so you like, like you're snuggy or something like that, like, or your favorite shirt, like the shirt that you refuse to go, uh, throw away because it's like the softest thing in the world because it's been through the wash so many times, that type of thing. These are like bodily appetites and there's nothing wrong with these, by the way. There are like people who are like, oh, you have to, you have to like master your appetites. And it sounds like you with an iron fist, just like, like annihilate them, but no. Uh, what you want to do is tame them. Um, so those are interior desires, uh, and you'll hear appetites and desires used interchangeably. So when you hear desire, think appetite. Whenever you think appetite, think desire. And then there are external desires such as money, power, honor. Again, good things, um, but they're not good things in and of themselves. All right, so the will. The will is the appetite of the intellect. What does that mean? All right, let's illustrate this by an example. All right, let's say that you have been presented with a bowl of ice cream. Just picture the flavor in your head. Everybody's got their favorite. No judgment, it's chocolate. Um, 
And so you're about to enjoy this uh, bowl of ice cream when you look across the street and you notice that a building is on fire and there's a baby in the building. And if you don't go save the baby, the baby's going to die. But at the same time, you realize if I go save this baby, the fire is going to melt the ice cream. What do you do? Nobody, nobody in here would, I, I hope nobody in here would hesitate to say, you go save the baby, right? Why? Anyone, including on Zoom, why? Yeah, what, but, 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 but what is it about a human being that makes them worth risking your own life and foregoing ice cream to save? And you would say, like, it's a pro-life kind of, right? Like, you are saving the life from, like, the beginning. Because life is... Valuable? Yes, good. Yeah, it's good. Like, life is... Yeah, you're right. Life is good. Um, babies are good. It, like, there's, there's, there's inherent dignity in the, in the person of the baby. And we know there's this imminence of death for the baby, and there's more ice cream in the freezer. Uh, even if there wasn't more ice cream, even if that was, that was the last bowl of ice cream on earth, we would all go save the baby because we imminently know in our intellect that the baby is good. The, the baby is better than the ice cream. And so the baby is so good that we're willing to risk ourselves to save the baby. That is the will. All right. Now, why does evil happen? All right, let's say that you were presented with a bowl of ice cream while you're standing on a scale and you look down at the scale and you think, I could lose a couple pounds. But that can wait. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all been there, I think. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, that's a situation where um, we can actually look at we can actually look at the scale and say I need to lose some weight, but the imminence of the necessity of it is not as great, and so we don't feel a sense of urgency, feel spirit, um, and so so what ends up happening is the bodily desire for the ice cream overpowers the willful desire to lose weight and be healthy. All right, does that mean ice cream is bad? No, not at all. Um, I can't eat any right now because I'm doing Exodus 90, but ice cream's great. I plan on having uh, ice cream like on Sundays and solemnities or after the 90 days. I like eat ice cream, but um, what is the entire point of what I'm saying? The point is that if you do not let your, in your will tame your appetites according to reason, then your appetites will rule the rest of your soul and your appetites will absolutely annihilate your intellect addicts why are they addicts because they let their body body bodily appetites rule themselves and so it isn't as though the bodily appetites just rule everything and take over absolutely everything and your intellect never shines through that's not what i'm saying what i am saying is that your bodily appetites because you're a concupiscent because you're fallen um your bodily appetites will just sort of wreck you. So setting that aside for a moment, what is vocation? Vocation is an English word that comes from a Latin word, vocare, which is to call 
but specifically to call from somewhere out from somewhere. So when we talk about vocation, we're talking about God calling you out of sin. We're uh, out of like a ho-hum sort of existence living for yourself. All right. So holiness is our first vocation. So that means perfection and charity. Uh, that is love for the sake of the other, not for yourself. So to have perfect charity means that when you love someone, you desire their goodness and you do not, you're willing to sacrifice. You're willing to like actually lose something for the sake of them. You don't have to, but that's, that's like the, um, basically your detachment to the things you may lose is such that, um, you don't care that you lose them. Um, religion. So we think of religion, it's like, oh, my religion is Catholicism. And the other person's like, my, my religion is Buddhism. Um, the Buddhist is wrong. The Catholic is right. Um, because religion is anything that directs one to God. So uh, in a certain sense, we are all right now religious because we, at least in part of our life, direct ourselves towards God in a very explicit sort of way. Um, and so in any vocation, um, we are called to be a living sacrifice. We are called to be a living sacrifice. Why? Well, because Christ was a living sacrifice. And when you are baptized, you are baptized into the body of Christ. Now, uh, interesting tidbit about this. So when we go to mass, we kneel for the, the, the Eucharistic prayer. And Father uh, says the words of institution, host consecrates. Suddenly we've got Jesus on the altar. We go up and receive Jesus. And um, we get like all these graces, right? Um, that's like a true thing, but it's not really expressing what's happening. Us, the uh, assembly of the faithful, gathered together in the church um, for this sacrifice, represent the body of Christ in the liturgy. Um, in a way that when uh, the Eucharist is made present, uh, one, the body of Christ was already there in us. Uh, two, when that is on the altar and it's being borne by angels to the Heavenly Father for the Heavenly Father's, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Father? The oblation is being yeah, the oblation is being offered. You, you, as the body of Christ, us, as the body of Christ, you are being offered to the Father as an oblation of the sacrifice. So what you are presented to the Father as a pleasing gift for the expiation of sins, for the satisfaction of sin. Far from God being an angry, sort of like punishing God, you, baptized Christian, or soon to be baptized Christian. I don't know if we have any catechumens. Soon to be baptized Christian. When you are baptized and Father. Yeah. The my sacrifice and yours will, make, will be an acceptable sacrifice at your hands. Oh, you better believe it. The Father is happy. The Father is pleased. He gazes on you with the same love as his son. The Mass is an explosion of love. And because of that, because of that, in order to become perfect, you have to live that sacrifice in your everyday life. Because when, well, in the extraordinary form, it's item which 
which uh, the translations of that are, are fairly adequate in English, but in, in Latin, it, it, is, um, it is go, the sending is. Yeah. And so far from the mass being over, in actuality, when the porter opened the door, the grace of God gushes from the doors of the church into the world. That is what you are meant to be. Okay. Keep that in mind as I'm talking about this. Three main Christian vocations. So there's religious life. And so you'll hear people talk about how this is like a state of perfection. And it's the highest vocation. And there are compelling reasons to say that this is true. There are theological opinions that disagree with this. Yes. Oh, yes, it's through that hallway right there. Um, I don't want you to get too hung up on that. I just want to address that because you might hear it. Um, the vocation that you go, that, that, that God has planned for you is the one for you to become holy and for you to become perfect. There are plenty of um, religious that did not live great lives, and there are plenty of married people who are saints right now, and you can pray to them. Uh, St. Therese of Lisieux's parents uh, are a good example of that. Yeah, and and maybe one thing we can do is we can uh, schedule something where I can actually explain the theology of that. And St. Thomas Aquinas talks about it in uh, the Secunda Secundi um, towards the end, why that is. Unfortunately, it's kind of a technical theological topic, and I it's just kind of hairy to get into right now in the time that we have. I would, I, I would love to explain that because it's pretty cool, but... Um, Unfortunately, we don't have time at the moment. Um, and the other thing is that, like, lay people, like, we don't really hear much about what the lay people is, but what you just explained to, um, you know, the sacrament of, like, the mass, and then you go out into the world, that is, like, our purpose, right? To be out in the world yeah. and bring the goodness. Absolutely. One people of don't really, like, explain to us that, like, the church, at least I have to really extremely Seek it through it, like as I like walk in my like, discerning my vocation and trying to articulate it that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a lot of confusion, but it's all I good. I 100% agree, and um, yeah, if there's if there's um, well, we'll talk we'll talk afterwards. I'm open to doing like remote talks from the seminary if it's possible. Um, but yeah, if, if people are hungering for catechesis, I can try to do something. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's a great point. And I would encourage you to do study on your own because you picked up on it pretty quickly. So um, religious life. All right. So the, the distinguishing thing about the religious life is uh, one, men and women can both do it. Um, uh, two, you live out what are called the evangelical councils, so poverty, chastity, and obedience. So you'll have a superior obedient to. You live a um, celibate life, and you uh, you live a life of poverty, which which means um, depends on the context what it means. Uh, certain certain orders like uh, ones that follow the rule of Augustine, uh, there's not like a rule of not owning anything, but that you are to um, share everything in common. 
whereas rules like the rule of St. Benedict, um, when, well, if the congregation follows the rule of St. Benedict, you're supposed to renounce your, uh, your possessions whenever you take uh, final vows and then, um, and then you, you own nothing. It is what the abbot uh, bestows upon you, essentially. Um, and you're basically, I mean, but you're basically a living Holocaust offering. So like you do not live for yourself at all. And um, not that like diocesan priests like live for themselves, but um, there is a, sort of like a canonical sense in which the diocesan priests, uh, like they can buy a car whenever they want to. They can, I say whenever they want to, it, it's not like they've, they're just flush with cash or anything like that. But if they were flush with cash, they could buy a car if they wanted to. They could own property, anything like something like that. Not so with religious life. Um, and for men, often uh, you're going to receive holy orders at the end. So the priesthood, basically. Um, some, some orders like uh, certain Benedictine communities and uh, Franciscans, um, a lot of men do not receive holy orders simply, simply due to their charism, but most, most religious men do end up receiving holy orders. Um, all right, so the, the diocesan priesthood, um, diocesan priests receive vows, uh, they give vows of celibacy and obedience to the bishop, and um, they, do, they devote their lives to the church, namely the parish that they're assigned to, and they act as representatives of the bishop, essentially. So theological point at the mass, who is the uh, main celebrant at every mass? Except for Jesus. The bishop. So at every mass, the main celebrant is always the bishop, and it is the priest acting vicariously through the bishop So, that's a great question. I don't know. Father? <laughs> Archbishop is just an honorific title. It's given to a bishop who is the bishop of uh, what's called the Metropolitan See. And the Metropolitan See means that it's an important see. Like, when I say see, S-E-E, that means like... The, it's like the provincial head. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the place where the bishop resides. Like, this is the see of Austin. Like the diocese of Austin. Um, and uh, so an archbishop has a, a, some, but very, 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 very little uh, like oversight power over other, the bishops within his metropolitan province. So, like, the, we're part of the province of Galveston, Houston. It's like power that you don't want to have. So, basically, like, when the bishop of Austin needs to be ordained, like, let's say, God forbid this happened, but let's say Bishop Joe died tomorrow. Um, like Cardinal Donardo would come and ordain another bishop. Yeah. Well, the Cardinal, the Cardinal We can talk. Hang on, I shouldn't use the Cardinal as an example. And Cardinal is another another honorary title, but it, it does. It's like I can do this for hours. <laughs> let's get a beer and we'll talk about Cardinal. We can talk about. Um, yeah, ecclesiology is like an entirely it's different. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful and unclear. Um, it's not always like there are certain things that are not clear, but mostly it's clear. Um, all right. So was it uh, Kristen? Yes, so Kristen asked me why women are not allowed to take holy orders. So the reason why women are not allowed to take holy orders 
is because um, holy orders are configurations to the person of Christ. And because the person of Christ is a man, um, women can't receive holy orders. Uh, and so when, when we're talking about like father uh, acting in persona Christi, uh, capitis at the, at the altar, we're, 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 we're not like being figurative here. We're, we're like, we're saying like, not, not that like it would be like talking to Jesus if he just went up and struck up a conversation, but that father's really setting himself aside and allowing Christ to operate in him. And so, I mean, the church, both East and West takes a very, very, very strong stance on the fact that the person needs to be of sort of the same um, species, not like from a biological sense, but from like a categorical sense, like it really needs to be a man that is uh, capable of things proper to being a man. Now there's like a, if uh, gosh, how awkward do we want to be? Okay. Let's put it this way. There are certain um, things proper to, to, being a man, that if you do not possess, you cannot be a priest. Um, I'll leave it at that uh, because, yeah, uh, it's not a not like a, a sexuality talk right now. Um, all right, married life. So you're called to be chaste. Um, you become one flesh with your spouse. Um, and in each each person in the relationship is uh, responsible for the sanctification of the other. Um, so, if you are a man and you get you get married, you are responsible for your wife's soul. If you're a woman, you get married, you are responsible for your husband's soul. Um, Saint Paul says that um, hus uh, wives, you're to submit to your husband as. Uh, as uh, you submit to Christ, husbands, you're, you're to uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church. People really get hung up on that, on that first part, and they just they forget the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be crucified for the, you know, the church. So, um, yeah, it's not, it's not like husbands just get to rule over women. And in fact, if you look at the way that Christ rules, he rules gently with love. And so, um, yeah, St. Paul is not giving men license to just like order their wives around and anybody who's tried to do that probably knows it doesn't work too well. Um, so anyways, um, oh, we have three messages in the chat. Yeah. Sorry, Kristen. It, it's, it's, yeah, more hairy theological things. I can I can compile resources to send out afterwards. Is that uh, like if you look at the, the testimony of the Gospels, Christ um, clearly broke many societal barriers, and he clearly uh, loved both men and women, and called both of them to be his disciples. Um, but then he chose twelve men to be. The, the, the bishops and the priests, right? And it, it wasn't like he did that incidentally and he wasn't just following a historical precedent, but um, Christ, Christ chose men and, and, uh, and uh, like there's not a, um, there's not a loss of sanctity 
or a loss of uh, the ability to become holy because one can't become a priest or something like that. So yeah, this is this is a great conversation. We could have some more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if, if there's time afterwards, I'll share like a personal theological opinion that I have about uh, why that is. Okay, so, all right, back to married life. Um, yeah, so marriage is ordered towards uh, procreation and having children, not just having children, but um, forming disciples in your children. Uh, and when you're married, you are forming a domestic church. Uh, so, I think a very good way to um, to think about marriage. So currently we have canonical regulations where if you want to get married to someone, you have to go through marriage prep, you have to gather sacramental records, you have to um, go through a battery of questions. Have you been married before? And if you have, then you have to go through like a tribunal to uh, null, you know, get a declaration of nullity on the marriage. And it's like this whole thing. And then like, once you go through all of that, you have to like go into a church, get two witnesses and a priest or a deacon or another minister that the bishop uh, approves to, you know, uh, facilitate the marriage. And so it seems like father is marrying you. Not so. Uh, marriage, I think is the only sacrament that, um, that a priest or a uh, deacon or no, 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 deacons can't, deacons can only do like baptism, um, that a priest or a uh, bishop cannot do. Um, and there, there's like a debate whether or not priests can do holy orders. But um, yeah, at the very least, a bishop cannot marry anyone. He cannot like confer the sacrament of marriage on anyone. Sacrament of marriage is given, um, well, by God, but uh, it is, it is, uh, it is initiated by the couple whenever they consent to the marriage. And what this could look like is you meet someone, you develop a close bond, a friendship, and then one day you say, I want to be with you for the rest of my life. And then you start living together and consummate the relationship. That would be a sacramental marriage. That is because marriage is the only vocation uh, that is known to us by the natural law. So like if you're discerning priesthood or religious life and you're just like, ah, but I like, you know, girls or guys too much. It's like, well done. You, you work like you work properly. Um, you're not broken or anything like that. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's true for every religious, every priest, every seminarian, um, because, that is a natural part of us. The supernatural thing is um, a desire for priesthood, a desire for religious life, a, re a desire for um, consecrated virginity, something like that. All right, less common, uh, uh, less common vocations. Permanent diaconate. So deacons receive holy orders. Um, Permanent deacons uh, can be married, but once they receive holy orders, um, except like if there's, I think Rome has to approve it, they cannot get married after after their, their wife dies. So uh, if you're discerning the permanent diaconate, go into it with that knowledge. Um, 
and deacons are ordered to Christ the servant. Uh, so their, their entire ministry is in service to the church. Uh, it's far less sacramental. And then uh, the other less common one is a generous single life. Um, it's extremely rare. Typically, the way it looks is um, you were married and your spouse died, and now you're single. Um, less common than that are people who have some sort of canonical or other impediment to um, entering uh, a different type of uh, vocation. Uh, most commonly, people who struggle with same-sex attraction um, severely will... Uh, will not be able to enter the seminary or, uh, or religious life uh, simply because living around people who you are going to be, not, you know, sort of drawn to in that way uh, is really not good for your virtue or anyone else's. So the church says, uh, says no to that. Um, extraordinarily rare but um, also due to extraordinary grace are um, uh, people who have some sort of special consecration that God has called them to. And so examples of the St. Catherine of Siena was a third order Dominican who um, like her parents wanted to marry some, some guy and so she shaved her head and stopped eating anything except the Eucharist. And uh, then after a while of like serving the poor and praying, um, she went to Avignon and told the Pope to go back to Rome. Um, she's an incredible woman. Um, St. Martin de Porres, also third order Dominican, was, um, he was a, a, like a black, um, oh gosh, where was it? It was... Milagros, help me out here. Yeah. 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 He, so yeah, he, he was, um, it was, it was basically illegal for him to be, uh, ordained. And so he became a third order Dominican and, uh, he healed a lot of different people. He was very generous to the poor. Um, at one point he offered to sell himself into slavery to, uh, dig the convent out of, or the, the priory he was in out of, uh, financial troubles. And fortunately they told him, no, don't, don't do that. Um, yes. St. Martin de Porres. Yes. It was um, Peru. Yeah, Peru. Um, so, yeah, he's a great example. Uh, and blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, also a third order Dominican. Um, yeah, strange. Uh, he, was a, he, was, he was actually a 20th, 20th century. Uh, Dude, he was, um, he died in his 20s, but he, uh, he, he was um, a social activist. He, he really uh, advocated for the poor in Italy and um, apparently just brought joy to everybody he, he came in contact with. He's like one of those guys that you, you met and you immediately became friends with him. Um, very rare, but um, it happens. 
Okay, at this point, are there any questions? Including on Zoom. Um, so I'm still confused about the desire. Desire. Yes, I'm that's that's actually what I'm I'm uh, I'm getting to. Yeah. That's actually like the next section. Okay. So how do you know what your vocation is? All right, so we've we've learned what the vocations are. And so some of you may have in your head, oh yeah, I've thought about that. So how do you know what your vocation is? Desire it. You desire what your vocation is. And so if you're sitting in here and you're like, man, priesthood, that sounds awful, and religious life too, and the generous single life, I don't want that. I mean, it's it's like a really great indication for marriage for you. Um, <laughs> straight up. Like, it's a great indication of marriage for you. But if, like, any of those things sound appealing uh, to you, uh, basically what you do is... Thank God for the desire for the for this. Um, pray that, uh, and then you can either pray that He increases it, or you can pray that He doesn't. Um, and you can see what happens because uh, sometimes He ignores me um, and does what He wants. But uh, you can you can see what happens whenever that happens, and uh, God kind of does what He wills. But um, yeah, and see how that see how that desire changes. Uh, if you if you ask for it to increase, it's probably going to increase. Um, yes. Yeah. Con yeah. Consecrated virginity is uh, it's not something that I'm terribly well versed on, but essentially what you're doing is what you're you're basically saying I'm going to be celibate, but I'm still going to live a secular life. And so you still work and, um, you know, you still manage your own finances and all of that, but you, you live a celibate life um, as a spouse to Christ. And so you're essentially espousing yourself to, to Christ. Sure. Yeah. And it's done with the discernment within the diocese and like the bishop is the one who ultimately accepts your, your position to, to do that. And then there's like a whole, there's actually a very beautiful ceremony of, of consecration. Yeah, you get to wear like a wedding dress and everything like that. It's nice. <clears throat> um, so, uh, oh, yes. Then, a little bit ago, you said in the context of marriage, if a couple was living together, that that would be sacramental. No. All right, yeah. Let me, uh, no, uh, that's not what I meant. <laughs> no, no, no. So I, I meant, um, let's take all of the canonical regulations of marriages and set it aside and then say, what is the sacrament of marriage? It, it, it is literally the coming together of two people who say, until you die or until I die, we are one flesh and we will love each other as one flesh. And that starts in friendship and it culminates in friendship as well. So, so the church puts so like the church has laws about marriage, right? So one of those laws is if you're a Catholic and you want to get married, you have to get married in a church, and you have to get married in front of uh, a Catholic minister and within the presence of two witnesses. But even in the law right now, let's say that you lived in like Antarctica 
that somehow you found your beloved. Right. <laughs> and you both happen to be Christian. And you both happen to be Catholic or Christian, right? And you said, uh, we want to get married. Right? But I, I don't know if there's a diocese in Antarctica, but I'm pretty sure there's not. Or maybe like Australia takes care of it. Or, I don't know. Argentina cured it fuego. Or like if you're if you're isolated in some way where um, um, like America like a canonic like a canonically valid marriage is never going to happen. There's like provision that. So the church says because because what Mike is trying to emphasize, if I understand you, Mike, is that like marriage is conferred by the spouses on each other. I don't when I when I go up there and witness a marriage, it's not me who's married. And I think we say that colloquially. Did you marry that couple? Yes, I married that couple. But really, more properly speaking, she married him and he married her. I just watched them do it. And, yeah. and on behalf of the church, bless them. Okay, so, so you're talking about like two Catholics, for example. You weren't talking about just like anybody in the world doing that. Any two Baptists. Yeah, any, yeah, any two Christians that constitutes a sacrament of marriage. So, follow-up question. Doesn't the church also say that uh, a Catholic uh, cannot marry a non-Catholic. Uh, you know, what if she's like Orthodox? The church says that uh, Catholics should marry Catholics, but she makes provision for those marriages where, for the good of, for a lot of different reasons, um, there, there's a possibility of marrying someone who's not Catholic, who's Christian, or um, in a more extreme case, someone who's not a Catholic. So there are there is provision there. Should you, you, you rightly point out that that is an exception to the law, which is granted for a particular case, rather than the ideal situation. If you get permission from a bishop to marry someone who's not Catholic, do you like promise to bathe them the rest of your life? No, you don't even have to promise to bathe them. You can get a dispensation. You're not going to leave the Catholic faith, and you have to promise. To do your best to raise the children's life. Right. And any priest is going to say to you, um, what, like, what is this going to look like? You better think about it, right? Because if, if you're marrying someone who's not of the same faith as you, you're going to need to have that conversation. You better have a conversation now <laughs> rather than later. I mean, um, it would be better to have that conversation. Uh, well, real, real quickly, somebody on, on uh, Zoom had a question, so, and it, uh, it's fairly quick to answer. So Juliana said, are lay people witnesses needed at a Catholic wedding, or is only the minister required? And the answer is yes. There needs to be, uh, there need to be two witnesses at the wedding, not including the minister. Five people. Yeah, five people total. Yes. So, so to understand what that means, an annulment is not like a divorce. Okay? So first of all, an annulment is more formally called a declaration of nullity. So declaration of nullity means that uh, the church in her judgment judges that there was never a marriage. Right? So you said the vows, you thought you were getting married, but for some defect, because of some reason, you weren't actually married. So there could be for a lot of different reasons. Um, for example, 
let's say that, um, we'll use a biblical example. Let's say that you are Jacob, uh, the patriarch Jacob, right? And you thought you were marrying Rachel, but you weren't. You were marrying Leah, right? Uh, the church would say, well, you're not actually married to Leah, right? You, you, because you thought you were marrying someone and you were marrying someone else. Now, that's a really extreme case that doesn't happen very often, but, uh, right, like most notably because we don't have like a really thick veil in the one face. Uh, but no, uh, yeah, so there, there's all sorts of different things. Let's say that someone um, said, yeah, I, I agree, you know, um, you know, I want, to, I want to be married to you until death to this part. Um, but if you can't, if we can't have children, then this marriage doesn't exist. Well, the marriage doesn't exist because it's an intention against permanence. Like you, you marry someone without a condition, right? There's no, if you, if you read the marriage about it, there's no conditional statements at all, right? It's I, insert your name here, take you, insert your spouse's name here, be my husband, wife, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, uh, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live. Period. There's, there's, and so, um, yeah, so if, if you're against, if you, if you don't understand what marriage is, there's a lot of other reasons for it. All right. Um, real quickly, could we, could we, Okay, so so for for the time being, I only have a few more uh, points because I I would I should be able to wrap up by eight, and then once we get to eight o'clock, I'll open it up for questions so that anybody can that can that needs to leave can can leave. Good. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, in terms of desire, so one thing that I do want to cover is um, don't feel like you need to desire something just because you you think it's a higher vocation. Don't don't like try to desire something. Desire what you desire. God made you 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 do you. Okay. Um, uh, and 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 also become virtuous. Um, grow in virtue. Like now is the time. Now, right now. Um, the the more virtuous you are, the better you know yourself. Not just like uh, know like you know, know what you like uh, to eat in the morning or something like that. But know the person God made you to be, the most you possible. And when you know the most you possible, then, then you're going to get a better idea of what your vocation is. Um, and so when you come to the knowledge of your vocation, what do you do? Um, uh, first of all, uh, be sure that you're in a community because um, discernment happens in a community. Discernment happens with your friends. Discernment happens with the church. Discernment happens with the person you're dating. Um, uh, have friends that are virtuous, uh, not just friends that you have fun hanging out with, although that's important. Not just friends who like have a truck and can help you move furniture. That's important too. Um, have, have friends. Have friends that are good. Have friends that are honest with you. And um, I'm going to quote something that. Uh, my uh, dearest friend at seminary wrote to me, and this is how I feel about my brother seminarians. And it's how I feel about a lot of the people that I meet around here at the parish. 
Um, he said, sometimes Christ reveals himself in his cre creation in such a clear, poignant way that you know you, that you know that is how the, that creation was meant to be. In a very purposeful, particular way, it makes sense that God made you. You need someone to show you that in yourself. You won't see it in yourself. You need someone to show you that. And it happens offline, in person, unfortunately wearing face masks right now, but hopefully everybody gets vaccinated and COVID's not a problem anymore and we can take them off. But that happens with someone. Um, say yes to whatever the next step is, whether it's applying, whether it's talking to the vocations director, whether it's going on a come and see, um, whatever, huh? Asking a person out on a date. Asking a person out on a date? Yes, guys, you have to ask. <laughs> you can't just like be nice to them and then they intuit that you want to go on a date with you and you magically just show up together like where you, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> ask me how I know. Um, ladies, if you, but ladies, if you like the guy and he doesn't seem to notice you, I know that, um, maybe like some of us, uh, are like really traditional about women asking men out, but if you really like him and you want, you want him to notice you, ask him out. Um, what was that? Or step on his foot. <laughs> that that's like a two-edged sword so you know be careful <laughs> not hard. but anyways um your vocation is not something you are constantly discerning as though you will one day have an epiphany that this is not actually your vocation through your actions you will reveal to yourself and others the desire of your heart and in so doing you will realize whether or not what you are presently pursuing is in accordance or discordant with your vocation in other words like have you ever noticed that um, you'll see somebody who is like looking at the desserts at a buffet and they're like, but they're like turning in various directions, but they're like kind of always by or something similar to that. You know, that person wants those desserts. So too with your, like in your actions in life, you are going to, you are going to, like turn towards the thing that you want. And so there are guys at seminary where they are turning towards the thing that they want, like marriage or religious life or whatever. And they discern out and they enter into that. And guess what? They found their vocation. There's no shame in that. Um, your vocation is going to be your vocation. I mean, it's like, it doesn't seem too helpful, but it is kind of, important to remind yourself that, that whatever your vocation is, that's what it's going to be. So what's next? Uh, one, I think is most important, form, form your intellect, open a book, um, read about vocational discernment things. Um, All right. Okay. So we have three things on the back. Sorry for everybody on Zoom because, um, you can't like reach through the screen and grab one of these, but um, we have these pamphlets in the back. This is for literally anyone. Um, it says you only live once, be holy. So um, the thing on uh, the single life is um, 
incomplete. So go based on what I said, not that. Um, <laughs> so this blue one, this is for women uh, who are seeking the religious life. Um, this one, men who are discerning the priesthood. Um, if you are very serious about it, uh, talk to Father Will, because we have some books in the, um, the rectory that uh, are available for free if you need help um, uh, you know, acquiring one. Uh, maybe you think it's a little bit too expensive and you can't really do it right now. Don't let that be an obstacle. Um, and if we don't have the book, our vocations office has like it's literally like half a bookshelf full of books so um don't let that be like a, a something stopping you from learning more one of them uh discerning religious life this is for women um i'm sure there's relevant information in it for men but from what i understand it's like really geared towards women so uh bear that in mind uh discernment do's and don'ts this is like a practical guide for discernment um a lot of good stuff in here a lot of uh echoes from my talk although um, I'm probably a bit more of a Thomist than, than this guy. Although uh, the author is a priest in the uh, Diocese of Tyler, so there you go. And then this one is like the Holy Bible of diocesan vocational discernment. Like, what? Well, specifically for discernment. Um, yeah, it's called to, to Save a Thousand Souls, a guide for discerning a vocation of the diocesan priesthood. I've read it cover to cover. It's a great book. Um, so if the diocesan priesthood is appealing to you, definite read. Um, there's one more book that we don't actually have here, but uh, if you're interested, huh? Yeah. Okay. So we may have one copy. If we don't, then there's one copy at the vocations office that I, I can pull strings to get. Um, it's called A Living Sacrifice, and it's about uh, men uh, discerning vocation to the consecrated life. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, guys, if you're discerning the consecrated life, it doesn't mean that you have to be a priest. Uh, every order, I'm pretty sure, um, has some sort of um, non-clerical uh, vocation. It's just that in some of them, it's extremely rare, but they'll still accept you. Um, what else? Yeah, um, uh, but beyond this, like, Crack open your catechism, open your Bible, talk to Father Will. Like, Father Will loves, um, well, maybe he doesn't, but um, he will uh, accept anyone who's kind of picking his brain about something uh, theological in nature. So talk to Father Will, talk to Father Daniel. Father Daniel's like crazy smart. Um, you can talk to me. And um, yeah, uh, don't read St. Thomas, not until you, you understand Aristotle. Uh, that's like a mistake that everybody makes is they, they'll just, oh yeah, St. Thomas Aquinas, I'm gonna go read him. Don't, read Aristotle first and make sure you understand Aristotle. Then read St. Thomas because it's illuminating. Um, agree to disagree. Anyways, well you could probably, so there's, the, there's like the beginner summa that he wrote for Reginald. Brother Reginald was his uh, scribe and best friend. And uh, Brother Reginald's like asked him to, could you, this is so hard, could you write something easier? And he did. So uh, that's out there somewhere. It does. Yeah, you gotta like, you gotta like ingest every word. Yes. Okay, I thought it was just me. No, it's not just you. <laughs> so if you want to consume it, you gotta be better than the workbook, like a math workbook. Yeah. 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 
But I mean, form your intellect so that you're, and, and the reason why you do that, one, it helps you love more because you know, you know truth better so you can love, like you, you more completely know that thing so you can more completely love that thing. Um, but moreover, uh, it, al it also helps you, um, it, it also helps you direct your will in, uh, in the direction of uh, the order of your appetites. And so you can live a healthy, moderate, life um which is incredibly freeing so oh and uh frequent the sacraments go to mass go to daily seriously go to daily mass if you're discerning a vocation of the religious life or the priesthood go to daily mass go to the confession like once every two weeks if it's possible um yeah any questions yes uh so i have a question about single life sure yeah. Um, why is there no sacrament in the church for that? Because I don't know if I can tell you why there is no sacrament in the church for that. I can tell you why sacraments exist. Sacraments exist for the sake of, um, for the sake of like configuring you to a particular like state. So baptism configures you to justification, essentially. Uh, initial justification and a seal in the Holy Spirit as a Christian. And like, that's irreversible. Uh, confirmation uh, is like a seal of that that gives you confidence of uh, sort of evangelization. It's kind of like the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that kind of thing. And, um, and so that's what that is for. Um, Holy orders uh, configures you to uh, Christ in various ways. So one way is um, Christ the servant, which is the, the diaconate. Another way is Christ the priest, which is the priesthood. And then there's Christ the head, which is the bishop, the episcopate. And so, um, so you can you can receive holy orders a maximum of uh, three times. Um, sacramental marriage. Um, I mean, it gives you. I mean, it gives you the grace to to live a marriage directed towards God, a religious marriage directed towards God, uh, forming disciples. One way I like to think about it is that marriage is a, um, it's a liturgy of sorts whereby you bring forth, um, the children of God. Like it, it's, I mean, God, God, even his own son, God did not just out of dust, like create the children from Adam and Eve. Like he said, okay, I've created man. I've created woman you are going to be responsible for bringing my children forth. And he made us so that we would be incentivized to do so. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, every sacrament is ordered towards something. So the, the reason why there's no sacrament for the single life is because uh, baptismal grace and confirmation are sufficient. Um, and... Um, the single life is not something I would, gosh, how do I, how do I say this carefully? It's not something that I would, I would encourage in, as a good in and of itself. So remember earlier I said you are to live as a sacrifice. You are to be a living sacrifice no matter what you do. Like if you're married and by the end of your marriage, you don't feel like you don't have any money in the bank. Um, uh, you know, um, actually, let me, let me walk that back a little bit. If you live your marriage to the fullest uh, in pursuit of uh, sort of 
God's plan for marriage, then you will probably experience poverty at some point along the lines because kids are expensive, pure and simple. Um, you will have, you, you will be obedient to sort of the demands of your children and your job. Frankly, you will, um, be chased with your spouse. Um, the single life seems to, well, you've got like a ton of disposable income. Um, well, maybe not in Austin, but um, in normal places, you've got like a lot more disposable income. You um, are free to determine what to do with your life for the most part. Um, and you are under no obligation, like immediate sort of um, obligation to give to anybody, which cannot be said for any of the other um, uh, main vocations that the Catholic Church um, promotes. And so if you are to pursue a single life, there must be some way in which you are giving of yourself, like denying yourself totally. And in so doing, you, you will be living a holy life and it would, and that that's great, but you really do need to be giving yourself generously. And I don't know, I lived a single life before seminary and I got to be honest, I wasn't as generous as I ought to have been. And so people thinking, well, I could live a single life. I would, I would not say don't do it. I wouldn't say, um, I wouldn't say definitely not. I would just say, you know, be cautious, do it in, discern that in community definitely, and um, be open to other things. Any other questions? Um, I have a question. Why do you want to get married in church? Um, like, I know a lot of Catholics well, they won't. If they get married at a beach, it'd be very, very weird if a uh, Catholic priest was there. <laughs> Trust me, I would get in so much trouble. You have, you have no idea. Um, uh, so there, there, the church could give an exception, right? It's not like. By divine law, you couldn't get married on a beach, right? So why does she ask that it be in in a sacred space? That, that's actually what she says is in a in a church, in an oratory, in a chapel, um, something like that. Well, it's a sacrament, right? And the sacrament is not about like your. I, I often say this in my wedding office. Okay. Though all eyes are upon you today, this marriage is not about you primarily. It's, it's about the fact that you're offering yourself as, like you said, as a living sacrifice to one another for the sake of the glorification of God. And it's about Christ. Um, because in, in a marriage, Christian spouses, they image for us, this is why it's called the sacrament. The sacrament is an efficacious sign, which uh, gives grace. Okay? What's it point to? Well, marriage points to the love of the bridegroom, Christ, for the bride, the church. So um, that's why, I mean, like, that's why she says, um, for the good of like, the fact that we're human beings, that we, visible signs matter to us, that this is something that's sacred that is happening, and so it should be in the church. Um, that's, the, that's the reason behind that. So, like, if you were not to, for example, like my parents would be married in my church, or my mom's church, so. Were they, were they Catholic? My mom's Catholic, my dad's not. So, like, are there, like, consequences for that? Um, so, 
without judging a particular situation, so I'm not passing judgment on, on, the, on your particular variants, because there could be circumstances that I don't know about. Um, generally speaking, the church would say they're not they're not married in, in the eyes of the church, right, in that situation. <clears throat> so there could have been an extenuating circumstance in, in any particular certain particular set of circumstances that uh, would not make that statement true. Um, and always it's with mercy, right? Like the church, like if, if two people said we got married on the beach and we didn't we didn't know or we were supposed to be married in church, but maybe we did, but we had that time we just didn't care, right? And then they come back, it's like, okay, great. But like I'm gonna be super happy to see them in my office in the beach. Right? Like I'm gonna be like, yes, okay, what can we do? Can we let's do a convalidation next week, you know, like which is just like redoing the vows in a church. And recognizing the good, but also saying, yeah. Um, I did want to touch uh, one of the returns. What's your name again? I'm sorry, Luke. Luke. Um, yeah. So uh, I think what Mike said is really true. Like that. Uh, the religious life, or like uh, when Paul talks about um, not being married, right, the, the single life, um, he's saying that this is better because one can be totally dedicated to the Lord, right? And uh, and one thing that, that Mike talked about earlier is how the religious life, right, when he talks about religious life, he's like a consecrated person, he's consecrated directly to the Lord, right? So even if, if uh, someone's a Dominican, for example, right, maybe they're a priest, but their their primary thing is that they're consecrated to God alone, right? If, uh, you know, the, a, uh, a consecrated virgin, likewise, is she's consecrated Solely to God, um, and uh, the like, the relationship is directly to the Lord. Whereas me, right, as a, as a diocesan priest, um, I'm consecrated to, to God to the service of God by my baptism. But in a particular way, that is mediated through the the fact that I'm a priest for the diocese of Austin, right? This particular church and I holy orders. Uh, is ordered to the service of the baptized, right? My, my priesthood, which is not my priesthood, it's Christ's priesthood in which I participate, is ordered to the service of the priesthood of all of the baptized in which anyone who's baptized here participates, right? It doesn't make sense for me to be a priest if it's not without, without y'all, right? So, um, so, there's there's that kind of mediation. Same thing's true for marriage, right? There's that mediation. But the the consecration, which is uh, kind of fulfilled in uh, the life of a consecrated person, like when we say consecrated person, you know, like a consecrated virgin, religious life, that kind of thing, um, is present already in a in a in inchoate, like a, a like a like a seedling stage in baptism and confirmation already, right? It's like we're all made for what the religious and the consecrated person are already living in a, the most full way possible on this side of heaven. We're all going to that because at the end of our lives, when we stand before God, that's, it's not, there's, 
there's the mediator who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's what we're going towards. Um, any other questions? seminary and you have to, I mean, I have doubts. Yeah. Like, I have doubts that I'm going to be a diocesan priest. And, and I, I express that. Now, you need to be open with them with your vocations director, but I, I had doubts. I explained them to the vocations director at the time, and they, they're like, yeah, I mean, you got to go to seminary to find out. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think one, of, one of the principles is like, uh, and this is what I love about what Mike said tonight, is you inform your intellect Right, like first pray, right? Yeah. Then inform your intellect, and then you make a decision. You do something, right? You choose to go in a direction, and you say, "I'm going to go in that direction because I think that's where God's calling me." And if it's not, great, I've learned something, right? Like, uh, I can't. I mean, how many people discerned out this semester at Holy this, Trinity? This semester, like four or five. Or five out of a house of fifty. So ten percent of the men who entered sem- who have entered seminary, right, discerned out in one semester at that seminary, right? Not in the diet. We actually didn't have anybody discern out. The yeah, we uh, actually gained. Yeah. So anyway, we're doing great. Um, but what I'm saying is, like, it's like, okay, you see the girl across the room. She's cute. Uh, you you like start to get to know her, and you say, well, this is a possibility for us to actually date. Like, I could see this working out. Then you ask her on a date, right? You don't like go Facebook stalk her. <laughs> no, right? That doesn't do anyone good. I know that we all, you know, you do that. But, but uh, <laughs> I was in college once. Uh, generation yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we did. Right, okay, you, you don't get on Snapchat and uh, you know like stalk her. Anyway. So basically, okay, TikTok, Instagram. <laughs> excuse me. Whatever. I don't know these things. I'm just, uh, can I just say? Can I just say like a quick word about um, like uh, chastity, basically? Okay. So I think that there's a tendency to not know when one has lusted. So if you look at someone and they are beautiful or handsome, um, and like that, that like brings delight to you. You've not lusted against that person. Yeah. Um, you like you. You're working as a human being. Like, even if you're a man and you you delight in a handsome man or a woman, and you delight in a handsome woman. There's nothing about that that implies, and I want to consummate a relationship with you. That means that we are ordered towards beauty, and people are beautiful, and it is okay to take delight in beauty. All right. Off my soapbox. Like, lust is an explicit thing. You will have had the thought, and then, like, you will deliberate about the thought, and you say, "Yeah, I, I endorse that." Yeah. Um, that's what it takes. That that's what it takes to lust. It is to have the thought and then say, "Yeah, I'm gonna go." Like, I'm. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. a good thing. I want that in my heart. It isn't even that the thought comes to you. 
It's not that the, the pleasure comes to you. Like the pleasure is not a bad thing. You don't even need to renounce that. You can like thank God. Wow, that was wonderful. But like the moment the the sort of lustful thought comes into your head, you, you have the opportunity to say, no, I reject that. That's that's wrong. And once that happens, you haven't even been in sin. In fact, you've done something sanctifying. So that's something that I want to like get on a soapbox about and explain, and then get off because, um, yeah, I think I think. In terms of discerning marriage, I think that that can like make us nerve wracked and just uh, like want to be paralyzed with fear, lest you know we sin or something like that. Yeah, it's okay to be attracted to other people. It's especially okay to be attracted to the person you're dating. In fact, it's it's like it's like one of the things that you you kind of need to do. So. so Sorry. Good. One more example. So let's say people, two people are dating each other. Okay. Or courting. Uh, I mean, dating is kind of like it's it's oh, we'll call it courting. It's a weird term. Yeah, we'll just call it courting, like right. modern, like so, a new thing. So should they already have some some confidence that they uh, their vocation is to the married life, or is that process is is the process important in this? Uh, how deep is, is yeah how deep are they in into this relationship right have they been dating for six months or four years have they been dating two two weeks or or two days right like like it, it, there's a process here right you get to you it is dating is discernment the thing is you can't don't do it without a purpose right like if you can't see yourself marrying someone you have no business dating them Right? Be friends with them. That's great. But don't date them. It's silly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, more, more or less, if you are discerned, like, if you're doing, like, serious discernment to priesthood or something like that, it's not merely a desire. You're, like, talking to a vocations director. Treat it like, treat it like dating, kind of. Like, um, it, I mean, it's not really dating. Like if you like if you have a girlfriend and then you think, I oh, don't know, what about the priesthood? Don't just like dump her and then go talk to the <laughs> Like like start to look into it. Yeah. But once once it starts to get very serious and you really start to pursue that, take a break, end it, whatever. Just don't leave her on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the most important thing. Because you don't want to like that, what lust is is using another person, right? It's the opposite of love. And so you don't want to do that kind of thing. You don't want to, and you, you also don't want to do that to the church either, right? Like if you're discerning priesthood or religious life, you don't want to use the church in a, I mean, it's a little bit different, right? But it, it's possible. Right? Like I could, it's a pretty sweet deal being a seminarian. Yeah. So, okay. So, so being a seminarian for the diocese of Austin, not every diocese is as generous as Austin. So I don't pay a dime for tuition. I don't pay a dime for room and board. I don't pay a dime for books or fees. Um, my health insurance is better than when I was working at like a Fortune 500 company. Like, it's an insanely sweet deal. <laughs> like, I like I get like I you know I basically get paid to, to study and go to mass and stuff like that. So. Um, uh, and and by the way, for those of you who uh, have not got your undergrad degree, um, seminary, at least with the diocese, 
you can you can go and get your your bachelor's degree in philosophy and letters before you go on to theology and yeah that's an option. Any other questions? Can a Catholic marry a divorced Protestant? Depends on if they were sacramentally married. Assuming they're both Protestant, what does that mean? So, well, so Protestant, so a sacramental marriage is between two Christians. So, two Protestants. Uh, yeah. 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 Sorry, two baptized Christians get married with with a correct understanding of what a marriage is, and with all of the consent required for that. Mind you, that Catholics don't have to adhere to canonical rule because they're not Catholics. Um, so yeah, sorry, Christians, non-Catholic Christians do not have to adhere to Catholic canon law because they are not Catholic. So, uh, so yeah, like if, if two Protestants, let's say, uh, get married and they understand that it's a lifelong thing and they assent to it and they understand what it is, um, that's a sacramental marriage. And um, if they get divorced civilly and uh, someone meets one of them and they strike up a relationship and they want to get married in the Catholic church. Um, well, every single time there's like a Protestant marriage uh, in that situation, there, there will be an investigation into the marriage to de determine whether or not it's valid. So that will happen. And if, uh, if like, if basically in the, the proceedings, the Protestant finds out that, or the Protestant basically ticks all the boxes that makes it sacramental in their answers, then the church is going to say, sorry, um, you were married. And um, so there's no retroactive annulment for a divorced Protestant? No. Now, in the world of Protestantism, as of right now, is such that, um, I don't know, I won't say most, but a very, 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 very high number of yeah. Protestant marriages are not sacramental according to the Catholic understanding of what sacramental marriage is. So, I don't know, Father, would you say that that's a rare situation that we that we would find this Protestant marriage to be valid? No, I wouldn't say it's rare that a Protestant marriage is valid, but I would say that there's, there is, it, it's not uncommon that it's invalid. I mean, like, for example, if, if someone comes comes to marriage and they think, well, uh, you know, if my husband or wife cheats on me, then our marriage, like, then I, then I can divorce them, right? That would be, then that marriage is invalid, right? Because that's that's not part, that's not the, the commitment to lifelong fidelity, which constitutes marriage. Yeah. So there can be situations. There can be situations. It's, it gets really, and I don't mind, I, I love talking about these things, but, um, it gets really hairy. Like it, it, you have to know the particular situation, right? Because this is a, a judgment of the church and the church always presumes that a marriage is valid unless it's proven otherwise, right? Because it values marriage, right? And it values what that means because God made it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's actually really uncomfortable to tell someone, um, yeah, you're married. Like, I, I can't imagine uh, being in father's shoes because I haven't had to be there yet. And sitting in there uh, with like a couple, and they're like, 
well, we got to investigate whether or not your marriage is valid. And if it is, then you won't be able to get married to have a church. It's got to be a really difficult thing but, to do. But yeah, it's but necessary. It's necessary, and it's serving the Lord, and it's serving the disciple, like you being a disciple, right? Because you getting married is not as important as you being a good disciple. Right? Marriage is meant to order you to be a better Christian. And, and, and so, like, yeah, it's tough situations, but it's worth it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, like, a special place in heaven for people who, who are suffering from uh, being uh, separated from their spouse due to, like, marital strife. Uh, those are people that we probably don't get our prayers nearly as much as they All right. Well, it is uh, more than 30 minutes past the time we planned it in. So I'm going to close this in prayer and let all the people on Zoom go about their lives. And uh, we can probably go about a little bit until uh, Father. Yeah, we can hang out for a while. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us together. Thank you for putting this mind over the minds to your will, to your plan, and to your design. Uh, I ask that you would speak clearly to everyone and that you give grant and grace to everyone who listen clearly and not hesitate in following your plan for them. Because it is doing that you come to know what your most personal hope is. We ask all of these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.